Matthew chapter 8, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at Christ's authority revealed by miracles, and today we're specifically going to look at uh, Christ heals the leper. Christ heals the leper. And um, we'll have some introductory material on miracles in general before we look at that. Christ's authority revealed by miracles. Christ heals the leper. Matthew 8, 1 to 8, 17. And when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. <clears throat> and behold, a leper came out and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. <clears throat> and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleaded with it, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and, and he goes to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done to you. And his servant was healed that same hour. And when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and served them. When evening had come, they brought him to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits of the word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The sin of the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> In Matthew, chapters 8 and 9, we have a record of ten, excuse me, nine profound miracles performed by Christ. The miracles follow a lengthy section of Jesus on teaching, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. The Jews recognized that our Lord uh, was different and unique and concluded after his preaching that he uh, taught them with authority unlike the scribes. Here's one with authority. He's different. The miracles of the Savior are important because they bear witness that Jesus is the Redeemer and Messiah, that everything that he teaches is in fact true, reliable, and that his mission and redemptive work are truly of God and must be believed. Okay, we're, we're going to look at the role of miracles as authenticators. Now before we look at each miracle in particular, <clears throat> there's some, some important introductory matters that we need to address. First, since we will be discussing miracles, we would do well to define what is a miracle. Let's give a biblical definition of miracles. A miracle is a supernatural intervention by God that is not a normal process of the natural order. Miracles can be an immediate act of God on creation or they can be interventions in the creation by a supernatural work, action, through creative materials to affect a miracle in creation. In other words, he can work immediately. Okay, Mary, the Holy Spirit goes and Mary has a baby, uh, creates, you know, the incarnation. There's one way, that's an immediate work of God, that's a miracle or the creation itself, where God just speaks the word and creation comes into being, that's a miracle. Or, uh, he can work through means. Uh, when Elijah had healed a leper, uh, go wash in the Jordan, three times or whatever it was. And, or Christ took uh, mud and spittle and put it on the blind man's eyes and said, go wash in the river. You know, or, uh, an excellent example is, where God used an east wind to divide the Red Sea so they could walk across. That wasn't a natural wind. That wasn't a, that was an, uh, God used nature, but it was a miracle, a miraculous use of nature. 
So there's a difference. An immediate God, act of God or God does a miracle, on, uses uh, creation to affect a miracle. Those are the differences. <clears throat> Jesus commanded the winds and the waves to cease and they did. The conception of Jesus in Mary's womb, of course, was a supernatural act by the Holy Spirit without means. The New Testament miracles may be divided into two groups. The first are those in which no human agent was involved, such as the virgin birth of Christ, the star of Bethlehem, the earthquake that rent the veil of the temple and opened the graves for some of the saints to rise, and, of course, the resurrection of Christ himself. The second set, in which human agents are uh, prominent, may be subdivided into two subjects. First, the miracles of Jesus, and second, those of the apostles. The miracles of Jesus are of two varieties. First, the healing miracles include three cases in which Jesus raises the dead, as well as his expulsion of demons. The other are more ordinary miracles of healing, and not only those of named individuals, but also of large crowds. So, uh, see Matthew uh, 8.16 and 12.15. Second, there are certain nature miracles, few in number, and while it is obvious that the Gospels do not record all the healing miracles, it seems likely that the major miracles are exhaustively enumerated. They are the water turned into wine, John 2, 1-11. Okay, and that's a, it's an amazing miracle. He's changing atoms. He's changing molecules. Peter's drought of fishes. Okay, that's not just a coincidence. He either, well, it's possible that he omnisciently knew where the fish were, but... Uh, the drought of fishes, uh, Luke 5, 1 to 11. The stealing, of the, the stealing of the storm, Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Mark 4, 15 to 41. And Luke 8, 22 to 25. The multiplication of the loaves and fishes, Matthew 14, 15 to 21. Mark 6, 30 to 44. Luke 9, 10 to 17. John 1, John 1 to 14. And that's, God, he's actually creating something. Now, he's using pre-existing bread and fish, but he's multiplying it. He's creating new fish. He's creating new bread. <clears throat> Walking on the water, Matthew 14, 22 to 44, Mark 6, 45 to 51, John 6, 15 to 21. The second miraculous feeding, feeding uh, Matthew 15, 32 to 39, Mark 8, 1 to 10. The coin in the fish's mouth, which is possible that it's omniscience rather than a miracle. And then Matthew 17, 24 to 27, and the withering of the fig tree. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> the withering of the fig tree, Matthew 21, uh, 20 to 28, Mark 11, 27 to 23, and Luke 21 to 8. And that's obviously supernatural. <clears throat> Second, some of the miracles recorded in Matthew are found in Mark chapters 1, 2, 4, and 5. Many of these miracles are also recorded with the same, with some different details. Well, different details in Mark and also with Luke. Luke 4, 5, 7, and 9. 8 and 9. Uh, of the nine miracle stories which Matthew's collected here, six are paralleled in both Mark and Luke. One, uh, 8, 5 to 13 in Luke, but not in Mark. While the other, two, 9, 27 to 31, and 32 to 34, are similar to the stories which Matthew himself tells elsewhere. Uh, 12, 22 to 24, 20, 29 to 34 and which also have their synoptic parallels at those points. The collection of miracles is thus different in composition from the discourse of 5 to 9, excuse me, 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which contains virtually no Markian material, and more than one-third of which has no parallel in Luke either. So we have the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's not as complete in Luke, and it shows that Christ, you've got on flat ground on a mount. So it shows that Christ preached a very similar sermon more than once. More than once. It appears the account in Luke is chronological, while Matthew is more topically arranged. It is even possible that some of the miracles recorded in Matthew occurred before the preaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, for example, we're going to, today our topic is the healing of the uh, leper. He's covered with leprosy. That's recorded in Mark chapter 1, so pretty early. Now, why would Matthew follow the general organizational pattern of calling, teaching, and then miracles? Well, Matthew, writing primarily to a Jewish audience, wants to demonstrate that Christ's doctrine is proved or authenticated by his power to work miracles. So Jesus reveals himself to Israel in teaching, 
and in special miraculous good works. The crowds understood this to an extent, at least on a superficial level, in that, that our Lord became very popular as a healer in and around Galilee. He attracted crowds. <coughs> as we'll see in the... Well, we won't get to it today. We won't quite finish the leper today, but he tells the leper, don't tell anybody about this healing. Because he, once he it found out that he could heal anything, crowds came to him seeking healing. In Matthew 9, 8, after Jesus heals the paralytic, we read, Now, when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. <clears throat> when the Jewish authorities questioned the blind man who had been healed by Jesus, he said to them, the blind man, why is this mar a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is? Why this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has, not been, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who has been born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And that is a correct conclusion. People who are not Christians offer counterfeit miracles, but they're tricks. They're not real miracles. This was the same conclusion of Nicodemus in John 3.2. No man can do these miracles except God be with him. And Augustine says this, The things that were done by the Lord, how should they be done by any but by God? End of quote. Miracles in Scripture are referred to as sign gifts. And in the history of redemption, they actually appear quite rare. You don't see miracles throughout the whole Old Testament. They appear in different periods where redemptive history is moving forward. They generally accompany new periods of outworking of God's plan when new revelations were being given to the covenant people. <coughs> miracles do not appear in Scripture arbitrarily. They are clustered around major events in Israel's salvation history. There are three main periods of signs within the Bible. The first occurs during the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of Canaan. The signs authenticated Moses and Joshua before the pagan world and God's people. This was a period of great revelatory activity. This is where we get the five books of Moses. The second period <clears throat> encompassed the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah's ministry at the beginning of the great prophetic period. The prophets explained the law and revealed the coming of the Messiah. The third great period of miracles and revelatory activity is the ministry of Christ and the apostles. The apostles explained the person and work of Christ by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the finality and focus of all revelation. As we are taught in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, God, who at various times and in diverse manners, spoke in times past to, his, to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed, appointed heir of all things. True miracles are always a work of God, and counterfeit miracles, such as were done by, we read about the, them trying to imitate what Moses was doing, and uh, Exodus, the magicians, the Egyptian magicians, are always fraudulent and dishonest. You know, turning, making water appear as red is not hard to do. There's a lot of tricks that can be done. And ancient magicians use tricks. And, of course, shamans are frauds as well. They use tricks. They use psychology. They're not true miracles. And when Moses got to the more heavy-duty miracles that were really difficult, they couldn't even imitate that. They couldn't even come up with a fraudulent method. <clears throat> and, and then they concluded this is the finger of God. Matthew 24, 24 speaks of false Christs and prophets who will show great signs and wonders. In Acts 8, 9, we read about Simon who practiced magic. Like modern magicians, such men use illusion, trickery, and clever contraptions to fool their audience. If there were instances of something truly miraculous by the power of Satan, it would only be done with God's permission and sovereign control. Okay, this issue, are there counterfeit miracles that are accomplished by Satan? I tend to point in the directions of they're just trickery. But if there was something, it would have to be, God would have to give Satan permission to do something. Satan has no intrinsic power of his own over nature. 
Satan had to ask Yahweh's permission to bring calamities upon Job. You read that in Job, the first chapter of Job. He goes to God. Look at Job. He's, and God's talking about how what, what a godly man Job is and what a wonderful godly family he's got. And Job says, look, I mean, Satan says to God, let me take that away and he'll curse you. And so we have this experiment here and Satan does certain things that are evil. For the heathen and their priests and shamans, the magic and the mystical is an attempt to have power over nature and to manipulate people. For Christ and his prophets and apostles, miracles are not used as in judgment against the enemies. Of, uh, when miracles are not used in judgment against the enemies of God's people, they are acts of pity, mercy, and compassion that authenticate God's divine message of salvation in Christ. Okay, so there are miracles of judgment where somebody's struck blind or they're struck with leprosy. Those are very rare. But generally, when miracles are done, and they're done to God's people, they're acts of compassion <clears throat> and mercy. Roman Catholic mystics and Pentecostals or Charismatics claim to have continuing miracles and sign gifts, but it is obvious that they really do not for a number of reasons. Number one, Romanists and Charismatics are not conducting amazing public provable miracles like Jesus or the Apostles. And I know that for a fact. I was a charismatic myself. I was Pentecostal for years. I worked for Mario Morello in Berkeley, California, where I went to healing services all the time. They had giant healing services every month where they call out, oh, there's somebody in the balcony and he's got hemorrhoids. Your hemorrhoids are cured. Your backache is cured. You're... And they'd lengthen foots and all. There was nothing. You didn't see blind people being receiving their sight. You didn't see people being raised from the dead. You didn't see shriveled limbs grow back on. They're a fraud. They're not conducting miracles like in the New Testament. <clears throat> Remember, Christ's enemies acknowledged that he was doing miracles. They couldn't deny it. These were publicly done. They were public signs. They knew he, they were doing them. But his enemies, the scribes and the Pharisees, attributed them to the power of Satan because they were obvious. You don't have to attribute the, the work of the Charismatics to the power of Satan because they're, not, they're obviously not real miracles. They're a fraud. Benny Hinn and all that kind of stuff. Leg lengthenings, back aches. Number two, in Charismatic circles, the so-called healings are conducted in Christian meetings that are highly controlled. The purpose is not to point to Christ and the truth of the gospel, but rather to make the preacher more popular and to raise money. They're get-rich-quick schemes. Keep in mind, Jesus and the apostles healed many people with a word or a touch. Uh, Matthew 8, 6 to, uh, 6 to 7, uh, well, actually most of chapter 8, Acts 9, 32 to 35, they healed instantaneously. Uh, Matthew 8, 13, Mark 5, 29, Acts 3, 2 to 8, they healed totally, not partially. John 9, 7, Acts 9, 34, they were able to heal everybody who believed. Luke 4.40, Acts 5.12-16 and 28.9. They were able to hear serious organic diseases, crippled bodies, birth defects. Uh, Luke 6.6 6 and 17, John 9.7, Acts 3.6-8, 5.16-8.7. They cast out demons, Luke 13-32, Luke 13.32, 10.17, Acts 10.38. And they even raised the dead. Luke 7.11-16, Mark 5, 22 to 24, 35 to 43, John 11, 43 to 44, Acts 9, 26 to 42, 20, 9 to 12. And they healed everybody who had faith. Now you go to these giant healing meetings where there are literally a thousand people sitting there who are sick. Now, the church I went to, there was a guy in a wheelchair. He'd been born lame. He was in a wheelchair his whole life. He went to every healing meeting. He left every healing meeting with tears in his eyes. God didn't decide to heal me. Well, Christ would have healed him. The apostles could have healed him. Modern faith healers don't heal real sicknesses. It's a fraud. It's totally fake. And then number three. With the deaths of New Testament apostles, evangelists, and prophets in the close of the New Testament canon, all the special sign gifts ceased. They were no longer necessary. With a completed Bible... There was no longer any theological reason for these sign gifts to continue. We are to continue to pray to God to heal the sick, and all such healings come from God. But they are not done immediately through natural means in our era. They are done, uh, they are done immediately through natural means in our era, or God can answer prayer. God sometimes heals the sick through prayer. But there aren't people with this sign gift of laying hands on somebody and all of a sudden they're healed and they can walk or they're, they were blind and now they can see. That's just not happening now. If it was, believe me, it would be in the newspaper. It would be on TV. 
The only time you see faith healers on TV is when it's an expose showing that they're flying around in jets and they have several mansions and they're getting rich, soaking people with false, they have false doctrine, false teaching. They all are part of the prosperity lie, the prosperity false gospel. <clears throat> We know that the purported miracles by Roman Catholics and Charismatics is fake or counterfeit for their doctrine of salvation is false or heretical, and God does not authenticate or endorse false prophets and false teachers. <clears throat> and of course, all this is, uh, the sign gifts is easily proved by a number of passages that these are sign gifts. They're, they're, they, have, they serve a distinct purpose. This idea, we're going to have a healing service. You don't see that. Where do you see that in the book of Acts? They didn't have healing services. They went out and they healed in public, in front of pagans, in front of unbelievers, to show that they were speaking the truth about Christ. In Exodus 4, 5, God told Moses to perform miracles in order, here's what it says, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, has appeared to you. Thus the miracles attested Moses' divine mission. Moses is all, you know, Moses, some people, he had a speech impediment. Moses is all, why, why are they going to believe me? And God said, here's a staff. I'm going to do miracles. I'm going to show that you're my servant. That's the proof. Elijah was sent to reside with a widow in Zarephath. 1 Kings 17. After the widow's son died, Elijah prayed to God and God revived her son. What was the widow's response? Listen to this. Now by this miracle... I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Verse 24. When Jesus was asked the feet of dedication if he was the Christ, he said this. I told you, and you did not believe. This is John 10, 25. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear, they bear witness unto me. So it's not like Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Islam or or Scientology, where, hey, this guy's got some interesting theories, let's take his word on it. No. The Bible's different. It's been proved. It's been authenticated by miracles. You may not like me, Jesus said to the Pharisees and scribes, but the works that I do in my Father's name, they prove that what I'm saying is the truth, and you better believe it. That's proof. The signs that Jesus did authenticated both him and his message. The greatest sign, of course, was his resurrection from the dead, Matthew 12, 38-40. That is the sign of signs, the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians that the miracles he performed proved his apostolic authority. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Now, if, Matt, if signs were common in Paul's day, miracles, such a statement would have proved nothing. Miracles were never an end in themselves, but authenticated the apostolic message in the first century church. When Paul and Barnabas preached, the Lord, Acts 13, 14, 3, was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God was bearing witness to the truth of the gospel. You better believe this. Look at these miracles. This gospel is true. You better believe. And, of course, Barnabas is called an apostle in verse 14. The author of Hebrews asked this, Hebrews 2, 3 to 4. How shall we escape if we neglect so, neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. So it's not, it's not oh, Jesus was some rabbi, and he had this interesting philosophy, and you need to just accept it on because he says so. No, that's not what the Bible says. It was attested. It was proved. It was authenticated by miracles. Miracles that are not reproducible by modern musicians and pagan shamans. They're unique. They're undeniable. They're so undeniable that the scribes and Pharisees said they attributed them to Jesus doing it by the power of demons. And of course, Jesus said, well, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Why in the world would Satan, who hates God and hates man, why would he do works of compassion and pity? He would not. Third, the record of miracles in Scripture that testify to Jesus Christ must be received by faith and, and must never be rejected a priori, that is, before the facts, because of unbelieving presuppositions. 
modernists or Christian liberals followed the assumptions of unbelieving atheistic philosophers and scientists and thus rejected all miracles as impossible. The whole, this wholesale rejection goes all the way back to the Enlightenment and David Hume, 1711 to 1776, the most famous opponent of miracles. He defined a miracle as a transgression of the law of nature. But he then presupposed a materialistic, mechanistic concept of nature and argued that the law of nature has been established as uniform and unalterable. Therefore, miracles, he said, are impossible. Well, this is ridiculous. His argument assumes a strict and reliable empiricism, which is illogical and easy disproved. One cannot come up with universal, eternal, unchanging laws from empiricism for the following reasons. Empiricism is we establish truth by looking at the so-called brute facts around us. Number one, one would have to be omniscient to know if all the particulars at a given time were applicable throughout the whole universe for all time. Empiricism cannot develop universal laws. At best, it can say that something is more probable during a given period of time. The fact that no one has observed a miracle recently cannot speak to us about the Son of God's actions on earth long ago. And if you're going to take that radical empiricism of David Hume, then we can't know that any historical fact in the past is true or not. Because we didn't actually see it, did we? Number two. The idea of universal laws presupposes the doctrine of creation by an infinite personal God. If the universe came into existence by chance or pure contingency, which is the only alternative to the doctrine of creation, then the idea of a fixed universal laws that exclude the strange and mysterious is obviously contradictory. God established the created order with various fixed natural laws, but these laws are fixed only because God is in absolute control of his creation. If you believe in a chance universe, the universe of pure contingency, this idea that there are fixed laws and miracles can't contradict those laws is an explicit contradiction. The idea that God, who has the power to create the whole universe, is only in only 24-hour days, six 24-hour days, and he could have done it in a, a millisecond if he desired, cannot intervene. The idea that he cannot intervene in an unusual way in his own creation is absurd and foolish. If he created it, he controls it. And if he controls it, he can do miracles anytime he wants. And then three, if one accepts the atheistic materialistic concept of the universe, then one cannot account for the existence of the human soul or human freedom. Everything is mechanistically controlled, and therefore our minds and all predication are merely epiphenomenon without any real freedom. We're nothing but meat puppets. We're meat machines, like computers. We're not really... We don't have any kind of freedom at all. The atheist, the atheist who throws out God throws out himself and all meaning and all predication. He unwittingly embraces nihilism. And uh, my lecture, uh, my reading of Van Til today goes into great detail on this, so make sure you listen to that again. <clears throat> and then we come to our main topic today. That was introductory on miracles, the healing of the leper. Let me read, uh, and we're just going to get to the first three verses of this. Matthew 8, 1 to 4. And he came down from the mountain. Great multitudes followed him. When he came down from the mountain, okay, he's finished the Sermon on the Mount. He's coming down the mountain. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I am willing. Be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. But go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So Matthew shifts, he's organized this topically, he shifts from Jesus preaching to his healing, with the first example of him healing being a Jew. The second will be the Gentile, who's got the greatest faith he's, that Jesus has seen up to that point. Our Lord's priority was the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10, 5 to 6, 15, 24. This healing is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and Mark. Mark 1, 40 to 45, Luke 5, 12 to 16. Luke adds that the man fell on his face and implored him, 5, 11, while Mark tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion, 140. I'm going to combine those elements into the sermon. 
Mark also notes that the man did not obey Christ's strict orders not to tell anyone about the miracle, 145. While Luke informs us about the consequences of everyone learning about this amazing miracle in 515. So we get little details in, in Mark and Luke that we don't get in Matthew. Both Mark and Luke give us the, the impression <clears throat> give us the impression that this miracle occurred very early in our Lord's public ministry. Now, if we combine all the information from each gospel account, there are five things that we need to note regarding this healing. We're going to get to, I believe, four of them today. No, we're going to get to three of them. Or not even three of them. Number one, the condition of the leper. He had leprosy really bad. He had it all over himself. He was, he was in, a, in a, the advanced state of leprosy. He didn't just have a couple spots here and there. He was covered with it. He was, a, he was in really a bad state. Number two, the manner in which he implores Jesus. Number three, the response of Jesus was just twofold. His compassion toward the sick man, A, and B, his healing of the leprosy, which involves a word and a touch. And then three, Christ's command to tell no one. And then four, our Lord's requirement to now obey the law of Moses on purification. Then five, the epilogue, which contains the healed man's disobedience of the command to keep quiet. And B, the outcome of the publicity of the healing. We're not going to get to all this today. I'm going to run out of time. But let us carefully examine each element of this pericope with an eye on each account. First, and this is amazing stuff, the more you study the, the Gospels, uh, the more it's obvious that they're, they're an inspired word of God and they're amazing. First, let us consider this man's condition. While Matthew and Mark simply identify him as a leper, Luke, the physician, he's a physician, he tells us he was a man full of leprosy. It had spread all over his body. His leprosy was now in an advanced stage. His disease was fully entrenched, virulent, and covered his whole body. He was pitiful to behold and miserable in his estate. Of all the diseases that human beings can suffer, leprosy was one of the worst before modern times. Now, we can heal it today. It's a bacterial disease. It can be healed. Uh, but back then, there was no cure. There was no medical cure back then in ancient times. And the disease would literally cause the body to rot away until death finally came. And if you've seen any footage of leper colonies, like from India or, or places, uh, people are, their fingers are all gone, their toes are gone. You lose feeling in your limbs, and then you end up damaging yourself, and you start to lose flesh. You start to lose fingers and toes and pieces of flesh. In addition, it was known to, to be contagious, and thus lepers were cast out of normal society to suffer their fate alone. Or a colony of lepers. There's a very famous island. I think it's off the coast of India. The leper was required to announce his presence to warn others by the humiliating announcement, unclean, unclean. People would keep their distance, and no one would even dare to touch a leper. Lepers could not enter the temple complex and were forbidden to be part of the public worship of the services of the temple. They were forbidden to enter any of Israel's walled cities, including Jerusalem. And they were not allowed to attend public worship at the synagogues according to post-apostolic writings. There was no other disease at that time in Israel that, was so, that so separated men from his countrymen as this horrible disease did. It was regarded as a vile disease that made every aspect of the human vile and unclean. And it was considered to be one of God's most horrifying methods of pouring out his wrath on wicked or disobedient persons. It's specifically associated with rebellion, too. Numbers 12.10, Miriam was struck with leprosy by God for her stiff-necked rebellion against Moses' authority and his marrying of an Ethiopian woman. Uh, that's Numbers 12.1. Aaron, of course, rebelled with her. That's his Miriam's older brother, who took part in the rebellion, begged Moses, saying this, 12.12, Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half-consumed. See what's going to happen to her? God, if you don't heal her, please, Moses, beg God to heal her. And he did. In 2 Corinthians 26, 19, Uzziah, the king, was struck with leprosy on his forehead when he entered the forbidden temple area and attempted to intrude into the office of a priest. The priest warned him, you're a king, this is not your job. 
And what did he do? He went in anyway. And he got leprosy. God gave him leprosy on the spot. When David proclaimed a curse in the house of Jacob, excuse me, the house of Joab, for his cold-blooded murder of Abner, he said this. This is 2 Samuel 3.29. Let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper. It's associated with the curse of God. This poor man in his affliction is a perfect example of Israel lost in its sin and rebellion against God. As le leprosy corrupts and destroys every aspect of man's constitution, and he's regarded as a living death, a curse with no cure, sin with its guilt and pollution is uncurable by man. There is no such thing as self-salvation, auto soterism. There's no such thing as self-salvation. It can't be done. Why? Because we have a record of guilt, which only the blood of Christ can wash away. And of course, we have a sinful condition. We have the pollution of sin. We have inner depravity. Man cannot cease from sin. He cannot save himself. And he cannot cooperate with salvation unless God sovereignly saves him. There's only one man. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who can cure the curse of sin. Now, interestingly, we saw that in the Old Testament, that leprosy was inflicted as a judgment against those who rebelled against God's authority. The first healing of a Jew recorded in Matthew shows us what the Jewish nation needs to do to be saved from their sin and rebellion. Go to Christ as naked beggars in the dust. Save me, Lord, for I cannot save myself. I cannot obey your law. I cannot approach unto God without Christ. And then second, let us look at how this man implores Jesus. Matthew says the leper came and worshipped him, 8-2. Mark notes that he kneeled down before Jesus, 140. And Luke adds that he fell on his face before making his request, Luke 5-12. Now, whether this was an act of civil respect or religious homage, we, do not, we are not told. It's very common in a case of a powerful man who's highly respected in the community, like a lord or a prince or something, for people to bow the knee before him as an act of civil homage. There are a number of examples of, of people bowing with respect toward Jesus when they came to be healed. Uh, Matthew 9, 18, 15, 25, etc. Not all understood that our Lord was divine and deserved the reverence and worship only reserved for God. They probably thought he was a great prophet, like John the Baptist. But they didn't know he was God. So for them, it was a civil respect. In this case, however, the man's recognition that Christ has the power to heal at will. Prophets don't have the power to heal at will. Christ did. Indicates that this man is not merely showing civil respect, but religious, religious homage. His profound reverence was accompanied by a very earnest prayer of faith. Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. And that's repeated in Matthew 8.2, Mark 1.40, Luke 5.12, verbatim. His prayer is based on his faith and who Jesus was, and therefore on his power to heal. This poor leper understood that Jesus had supernatural power, and therefore he placed his faith in him as his only hope for salvation from leprosy. He realized that whether he was healed was primarily a matter of Jesus' will. Jesus, if you want to, you can heal me. Note how contrary this petition is from the modern charismatic faith healing movement, the Word of Faith movement. Now, this movement says that true faith uh, forces God to act. Kenneth Hagin taught this, Kenneth Copeland, Joyce Myers, all these people teach this heresy. If you have faith and you name it and claim it, God has to do it. No, he doesn't. Some very godly people die of cancer. I know people that have died of cancer who were very, very godly, who prayed earnestly, that fasted and prayed, and they died. If there is a real sincere faith, one's prayer must be answered in the affirmative, we're told. In other words, by faith a man can force God to act. That's the, that's the presupposition of the Word of Faith movement. But this leper understood that God is sovereign and sometimes withholds from us things that we ask for that are good things. He doesn't always answer our prayers with regard to sickness. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. It's up to him. Christians die of cancer at a young age. 
I like what Matthew Henry says. As to temporal mercies, we cannot be so sure of God's will to bestow them. As we may have his power, for his power in them is unlimited. In other words, we know that God can do it, but he doesn't always do it. But his promise of them is limited by a regard to his glory and our good. When we cannot be sure of his will, we may be sure of his wisdom and mercy, to which we may cheerfully refer ourselves. Thy will be done. And this makes the expectation easy, and the event when it comes comfortable. But this leper prayed for healing with the understanding that whether he was healed was up to Jesus. If you will, Jesus, you can do it. I know you have that power. The Savior was sovereign and in control. Did this man, the leper, lack faith? Because he didn't name it and claim it. And the answer is absolutely not. He had total faith in Jesus' power. But he knew that God doesn't always answer our prayers with respect to sicknesses. He was very bold to carefully work his way through the crowds to the feet of Christ. For he truly believed that Jesus had the power to heal. He had faith. And his prayer was thoroughly biblical. The leper's position indicated a knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. If you are willing, you can make me clean. He is asking not only to be completely free of the leprosy, which was in an advanced state, but also to be set free from the ritual defilement that accompanied the disease. Jesus can fully restore me to the covenant community. My isolation will be ended. I'll be clean. The lesson of purity and impurity in Scripture is that sin by its guilt and pollution pronounces us cursed and unclean in the sight of God. What leprosy showed on the outside, which makes one sick and foul to the very bone, sin does with its record of guilt, accompanying curse and depravity that extends to every part of man. The Old Testament priest could pray for the leper and do ritual purifications, but could not heal riding flesh, nor make bodies eaten away whole and perfect. But Christ, the perfect faithful high priest, removes all of our guilt and all of our curse by enduring the curse and the cross in our place. He removes our foul, unclean, filthy, leprous clothes and then replaces them with a per his perfect record of righteousness. By his redemptive work, he perfects forever those who believe in him. And this man had faith in that. He understood that. He is that divine physician who can make all things pass away and all things become new. In him is life. He can wash us thoroughly from all defilement of sin in his own blood. He can quicken us and revive us by his own spirit. He can cleanse our hearts, open the eyes of our understandings, renew our wills, and make us whole. And we must let this truth sink deeply into our hearts and have faith. There is medicine to heal our sicknesses. If we are lost, it is not because we cannot be saved. However corrupt our hearts and however wicked our past lives, there is hope for us in the gospel. There is no case of spiritual leprosy too hard for Christ. No matter if it covers your whole body, if your arms and legs are eaten away by sin, you can be revived and saved immediately by placing your faith in Christ, the Son of God. Rest assured, brethren, that although Jesus does not always answer our prayers regarding healing and our diseased flesh, he does always save those who come to him with faith. He may not heal your physical infirmities. And of course, we all have to die. We all have to taste death unless we're alive when the rapture happens. But he does save the soul. And he saves the body, too, in the final resurrection. Note Paul's inspired doctrine and promise. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. There's no doubt there. It's certain. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Romans 10, 9 to 11. So yes, he may not, you, have, you might have cancer. You might die of cancer. You might not be healed. Maybe he will heal you. You still pray for healing, obviously, and you have your friends and your beloved friends, your Christian friends pray for you. But when you go to him for salvation, you can be certain he will save you. It's absolutely certain he will save you. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And then third, let us consider Jesus' response, which contains a number of elements. Number one, Mark tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion. 141. Our Lord was truly a man who sympathized with his people's afflictions. When he saw the suffering of this poor leper, both physically and emotionally, imagine you can't hang out with your family. You can't go into the temple precincts. You can't even go to the synagogue worship. You're isolated. You're an outcast. He was deeply affected emotionally. The passage literally reads, having been moved in his inner being. And in the Hebrew way of speaking, deep emotions are associated not merely with the heart, but with the entrails. A paraphrase for modern English readers would say, his heart was deeply moved with compassion. Our Lord came into a world full of sin and suffering. The sorrows of his people are his sorrows. Jesus in his human nature was perfect and without sin. He was filled with fitting feelings of pity and merciful kindness for those distressed and suffering. He was moved to help this man because he wanted to help and because the man had faith in who Christ really was. His human sympathy as well as his divine condensation complied with the request of this poor, miserable leper. Second, Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Our Lord is willing to help those in need who possess faith. Now, faith, of course, is a gift of God, received by the Holy Spirit due to the redemptive merits of Christ. It's a gift. It's not autonomous. You don't create your own faith. God creates it in your heart through regeneration. To those he gives faith, the Savior says, I will. His answer is manifold, gracious, immediate, and one of power. Jesus has the power to save sinners, and every sinner he wills to save, he most certainly does save. Okay, Arminianism and Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism are terrible heresies that portray a God wanting to save everybody, but he can't get the job done. He's too weak. He doesn't have the power to do it. No, 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 no. The gospel says he is willing. He has that power. Peter tells us the Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any, in the context means every Christian, every true believer, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. Do you want to be made clean? Do you want all of your sins washed away by the blood of Christ? Then come to Jesus. Believe in him. Look to him dying on the cross. And then coming out of the tomb, victorious over Satan, sin, and death. Of all those who come to Christ for mercy and grace, they all may be certain that Jesus is willing to give them the salvation they desire. So don't doubt. I know you're a rotten, filthy sinner. You can come to Christ and he will save you. By his authenticating amazing miracles, he has demonstrated that he is willing to save and he has the power to save. Don't doubt it. I know how it is to be a rotten, filthy sinner. Totally depraved. Totally wicked. But he can save you. And he will. Go to him. Unlike prophets who must pray for a miracle, Jesus has the power in himself to merely speak the word, be cleansed, and it instantly comes to pass. He's obviously God, a very God. Immediately. The leper skin flesh and rotting limbs were as new. All his physical abilities were restored. The words be clean indicate not only an achieved full healing, but also the elimination of all ritual defilement. Imagine that. Here's a man full of leprosy. His body is literally rotting. He's missing fingers. He's missing toes. He's a sad sight to behold. His clothes are filthy and covered with leprosy too. And immediately he's made as good as new. Beloved, be confident that Jesus can make us clean. Go to him! Prostrate yourself before him like that poor leper and beg him for mercy with a confident faith. We deserve death. We deserve the curse. But he is willingly, he willingly has pity on us and makes us clean. Christ's love and mercy is as great as his power. 
Confess your sin and guilt. And then confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And do not be afraid. He is willing and powerful to save. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose for your justification. Have faith. Don't doubt. And then third, as Jesus spoke, he reached out and he touched the leper which would have been shocking to those around. You're forbidden to touch a leper in the Old Testament law. The law of God, Leviticus 8 and Leviticus 5.3 says that the person who touches a leper becomes unclean. But Jesus, who is both God and man and one person, was above the ceremonial law. He could not contract any ritual uncleanness. Although our Lord's word was enough to heal, he often resorted to physical contact as his healing power issued forth. 8, 3, and 15, 9, 18, 25, 29, 17, 7, 20, 34, Luke 7, 14, 22, 51, etc. On a few occasions, the sick would reach out and they would touch Christ and be healed. Matthew 9, 20 to 22 and 14, 36. That poor woman, sick for years and years and years. I forgot what it says, over 20 years. The physicians could do nothing for her. She said to herself, if I could only reach out and touch his cloak, if I could just touch his garment, I'll be healed. That's the kind of face she had. She reached out and she touched him. Instantly she was healed. And Christ said, who touched me? In his human nature, he didn't know. But power flowed out of him directly and healed her. What faith. The message of such healings is not hard to understand. Jesus has the authority and power of God, even in his state of humiliation. These are the doings of one who is almighty God. There is no escape from the conclusion this was the finger of God. Exodus 8.19. What an amazing, powerful, merciful Savior. The man covered in leprosy, who was unclean and had to remain far from the people of God, was touched by Jesus. A man who was filthy, rotting flesh, abandoned and left to die alone, was saved because of the compassion and love of Christ our Savior. And you're that leper apart from Christ, spiritually. Every part of your being is filthy and disgusting and unclean before God. You are cursed before God. The curse of God's law rests upon you. And if you die, you'll go straight to hell. Guilty. A guilty record in a polluted heart. But if you bow the knee and you go to Christ, confess your sins, acknowledge that he died on the cross for your sins, acknowledge, believe that he rose from the dead for your justification, you will be saved. As Jesus ratified and honored this feeble man's faith, he will deliver miserable sinners who come to him, confess their guilt and helplessness, and trust in his saving power. So if you're not a Christian, now I know everybody here is, but I'm talking about anybody who's listening out there. If you're not a Christian, this, now's the time. Don't wait. The most important decision you will make is, are you going to believe in Christ or not? Place your faith in Christ. Join a Bible-believing church, a Reformed church that believes in the true doctrine of salvation. Join yourself to the people of God. Confess your sins. Look at Jesus dying and bleeding for sinners who rose from the dead victorious over sin, Satan, and death. He conquered death. So look to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing miracle. Teach us about how dear your son is. Show us the beauty of your dear son. Lord, make him everything to us. Bend our hearts. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Take our hearts and make them totally dedicated to Christ. We have total faith in him. And we don't trust ourselves at all, but we trust fully in him that we may be followers, disciples of him the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.